The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders in their organizations, identifying the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author of an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Today's show is being conducted in conjunction with the Collaborative Brain Trust. So with me on the show today is Dr. Kavanaugh. He is one of the members of that Brain Trust. So Dr. Kavanaugh is the president and CEO of the Consortium of Universities of the Washington Metropolitan Area. Previously, he served as chancellor of the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education and as president of the University of West Florida. John is a leader in higher ed policy and innovation, as well as in innovation use, innovative uses of technology. He's led statutory and regulatory reform of higher ed and shaped the national discussion of quality assurance and accreditation. So my goal with this show, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, is to give you, the listeners, tools to help you update how you lead. And in some cases, those are very practical tools like persuasion skills. In other cases, they're point topics like talking about higher ed and the changes we're making. And I hope across all of those, I am talking to people who are leaders in their field, and irrespective of your interest in the specific topic, you will hear from people who are thought leaders who I personally admire, and you will take away wisdom from their thought processes. So today, specifically, we're talking about new ways of going to college and, quote, doing college, aspects of college that people will find familiar and some different. These differences now mean we have robust options to map skills to jobs. This can start as early as middle school through college to companies. We need skills across the pipeline that are thinking about uh, the broader pipeline. So how do I go from focusing on my children and what they'll do over the course of their lives and then plot out the education experience and then from the university and business side, how do I think about continuing to educate people as the model changes and from a business side, how do I think about continuing to keep my employees educated as technology changes the jobs that they're doing? 
So specifically, John's going to talk about how do we get everyone around the table and create alignment and the processes underlying that alignment because the systems will continue to change. So John, welcome. I'm delighted to have you joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Maureen. So what are you most hopeful about regarding higher education in the future? Well, Maureen, it it really is, I think, the beginning of another very interesting, um, some people might call it golden age of higher ed, because I think the way we think about education is undergoing a fundamental shift. Let me give you some, some examples of that. We're really seeing a better integration of the research on how people learn and matching that with the technology we use to deliver content and to have interactions with, with students. And in turn, those are re- resulting in, in better and deeper learning outcomes. So it's a much more immersive learning experience than it ever used to be before. The second thing is that there's a continued shift toward more experientially driven educational experiences. We've seen that for a long time in Montessori and other aspects of K-12, but it's now sort of, and co-op education in, in higher ed, but those were sort of niche areas. It's not like that now. We really are pushing very much to immerse the student in the learning experience, the whole concept of flip classes where you do the prep outside and come experience something, do an experiment and all in class. A third major change I, I, I really see and I'm hopeful about is the better integration of what I'm going to call foundational skills, critical thinking and things that we probably will talk about a little bit later with the career specialization. So it's not going to be so much, is it general education or liberal education versus career education? It's going to be how do we integrate the two so that the person can continue learning throughout the rest of his or her life. Another area which which gets into that is a much better, deeper integration in the P-12 world with higher ed. The fuzzing up of secondary school now with dual enrollment is a really good example of that. But even down, you mentioned uh, middle school, even even before that, what we know that students are going to experience in, in college ought to inform how we go about educating students even in the, in, in the preschool and kindergarten world. And finally, for almost the entire history of higher ed, we've been sort of cottage industries. Each institution is a whole standalone entity of its own. That's going to change. It's already in the process of changing to a much more collaborative, we're in this together, everybody is good at something, but together we're better at everything. You know, I love the conversation because I've been a longtime university faculty member, almost 20 years, a, and a university board member. And so sitting on both sides of that equation, watching what's happening in governance with small liberal arts colleges that are just vanishing. Mm-hmm. A, and in the classroom, even these lectures that are these um, interviews, I use those in my classes in that idea of flipping the classroom. So I love that that uh, construct will pervade and and move earlier in the pipeline so that as young folks are coming up, they are looking at careers and stepping through from middle school and earlier through a process that will will generate something different than we have now with massive student loans 
and people, the the number of people being educated in some fields underrepresented while others are overrepresented and it just leads to a societal imbalance. So I, I love that idea of alignment. Yeah, and, and the, you know, the use of technology is, is really rapidly changing. Um, you know, I, I've talked recently about the use of artificial intelligence and virtual reality. That has revolutionized how we do medical, tr- medical school training. Um, the whole use of virtual reality to train surgeons, for example, we can bring that down to the undergraduate level and imagine being immersed in a historical event. Imagine being able to interact in real time um, and, and with full sensory experience with people all over the world um, working in, in teams. It's not just a Skype conference anymore. It's truly immersive. Interactive ho- holograms um, where the, the instructor is in the, in the middle of the room or you are in the middle of a, a large hologram of the heart when you learn about um, the anatomy of the heart, for example. That's so I, we're on the verge of. So I could actually walk around virtually, obviously, um, a big, a, a huge heart, and s- walk through the the ventricles and the. I, right. I'm showing my lack of knowledge of hearts. Yeah, <laughs> you know the atria and 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 all of that kind of stuff. Sure, I mean if you've ever if you've ever done you know one of the VR games, you get a sense of it. Um, but, you know, it's only half a step from, from that to an educational experience. That seems really exciting. So let's put that then in. So we've talked about the range of changes. It sounds like the context is shifting, um, that we're really looking at a pipeline from middle school to, K, to well, K-12. Sure. Um, to college, to business and integrating that. Can you say more about that? Sure. Um, what we're really looking at is, is um, I'll call it a spiral, where in, you know, previously we sort of segmented education and, and you got your last degree and that was it, and you never had to worry about it after that. You might have been in a profession that required continuing ed. It's not like that anymore. Um, we see a continual feedback loop between um, you know, the work that you choose to do and the, the continual need to refresh your skills. Um, even in areas like agriculture, um, you know, construction, are continually having to refresh the skills because the tools that you use to do those jobs continually change. So we now think very seriously about lifelong learning, and that is the model that we're now grappling with in, in higher ed that we'll give you the tools to get you started, but we're going to see you again in, in some areas sooner than others, but we will see you again at some point. So it, it seems like there's um, an acceleration of certification programs. Mm-hmm. Is that part of what what this lifelong learning is leading to? Yeah, and I think, you know, in some areas what we may see is um, the deconstruction of, of the, the classic concept of a degree. Um, we, we see that in, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, some people call it badging, some people call it, you know, credentialing of, of different sorts. It really always has been about the acquisition of sets of skills over time. We are just going from bigger groupings called degrees to smaller groupings called, you know, credentials, micro-credentials, 
um, certifications, those kinds of things. And of course, the more you break it down into smaller units, the more often we're going to see you again, because you're going to need to bump those up over time. And you're always going to need those wraparound um, uh, sort of foundation basic skills to learn how to learn and things of that sort. So will college degrees, do you think we'll have fewer of them, but people will spend more time learning over the trajectory of a life? Yeah, I think that that's, that's quite likely to happen. I think we're going to focus more on, so what did we really mean for these hundreds of years by a bachelor's degree? What exactly did that, did that represent? Um, mm-hmm. And I think we, you know, we've, we've implicitly already decided that that's too big a chunk because if you look at job ads, for example, they may say bachelor's degree required, but then they have a long list of specific skills that they want to see that you have. If there was a perfect match between the degree and having the degree, you know, absolutely certified that you had these skills, you wouldn't see the list of skills. Mm -hmm. I think we already understand that, you know, saying somebody has a a degree doesn't necessarily mean that they've got the skills that we want to see. So I think we're in in a dual process of rethinking what components go into the degree and focusing on those components themselves at the same time. So some people will maintain the bachelor's degree, but others will have different variations, and this will continue to evolve probably over our careers. Right. That's exactly right. So that the bachelor's degree will not be sufficient over the long, you know, 40-year, let's say, Mm 50-year career that an individual will have, Um, and that's going to be irrespective of whatever, what career you pick. You're always going to need refresh skills and, and, and reprise. It's like you learn a, a, another language in high school, and if you never use it, you get rusty. Or if you don't use it enough, you can get rusty well, refresh. So the other thing that, I, that strikes me is the Ray Kurzweil quote that says, we'll have the rate of technology change in this century will be 20,000 times what it was in the last century. So you're talking about how we educate about hearts, what we've learned about hearts, what we've learned about brains continues to change. Right. How I deliver leadership training, even in the last year, learning a lot more about neuroscience, how much of it is um, learned, right? There are skills we learn, but how much is also brain patterning and raising my level of awareness. So, so some of it's unlearning old skills. And before we would send people to a leadership training class and assume that was sufficient. So, Yeah, I think, um, you know, we can get into, into this in more detail. I think the absolute key that we need to focus on all the way through school, including higher ed, is ensuring that people know how to learn. In a sense, you have to learn how to learn, and that is a foundational skill mm-hmm. on which everything else is built. Because if you don't know how to learn, then you're not going to be able to know how to refresh. So I learn how to learn, and then, I'm sorry, go ahead. And so if you don't know how to do that, then you're not going to know how to erase the obsolete information and replace that with the current information. Okay. That makes sense. I'm just, I'm back on this idea that as technology changes, it's not just my IT, 
it's information technology. It's everything I do. So to your point, I need to update just about everything I'm doing with certain uh, with a regularity that's probably prescribed by the industry. Right, and part of it also is if you really focus on so what are you know what fundamental skills do we need? You know, you go out to the store and you buy uh, you know a, a new phone or or tablet or something like that, and if you haven't done that in a while. You still have some sense of what you need to do to make that work. So if you know something about how to learn and, you, and you're curious and the environment encourages exploration and that experiential learning that we talked about earlier, you've got the skills necessary to learn how to use your new phone or your new tablet, at least the, 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 the basic skills to get you started. And if you notice, they're not giving you lots of big thick instruction manuals anymore they're they online that's right online or it's intuitive it's experiential they want you to play with it and through that play or interaction that's how you learn it cool thank you so we're going to go to break now this is Maureen Metcalf and Dr. John Cavanaugh and we're talking about changes in higher ed specifically how education will be delivered and what we as recipients need to be thinking about either as company leaders, how are we thinking about continuing to educate our employees and as also employees, irrespective of our level, how do we think about our continued learning? So we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. This is Maureen Metcalf, and our guest is Dr. John Kavanaugh, 
and we're talking about changes in higher ed. So John, what are the delivery mechanisms that will support this education in a quality manner? You've talked about flipping classrooms and we've talked about technology. I'm guessing there's a lot coming down the pike that's going to look different than what we see now. Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how much, at least on the um, different it's the look. I think what we're going to see is much more effective uses of the technology tools that we have. We talked a little bit earlier about virtual reality. I think that's going to be um, a, a very, very important tool coming. But I think most important here is the application of artificial intelligence or AI into the educational experience. We have um, some early um, uh, examples of sort of educational support mechanisms. What I mean by that is, let's say uh, a freshman is, is taking a math course. They've been out of school for a little while, so some of those math skills are a little rusty. By embedding you in an AI-supported um, learning environment, if you get stuck on a problem, the system knows that you're stuck and will pull you out and give you a little tutorial so to refresh your memory or to, to help you learn that, that missing skill. And then when you get it, it'll plug you right back in where you left off. So that will be a revolution, um, particularly in bringing people up to speed um, who have been out of school or had a, a little bit of a checkered experience and have gaps in what they were able to learn in, in high school. So that will... will really help us move people along much more quickly toward uh, degree or credential completion. I think we'll see a lot more opportunities for students to get that experiential learning that we talked about earlier. Uh, there's much more emphasis on internship opportunities, uh, uh, much more emphasis on study abroad or international experiences, working with people who are different from you, because certainly in the corporate world, um, that is expected. So I think those are the, the biggest changes in, in delivery. It always will still have um, the, the sort of the personal touch, whether uh, supported through some sort of technology-mediated thing or, or by a real person. But we're also getting much better at monitoring whether the student's stuck, even before the student realizes it. And that is going to really help students keep moving forward and not get frustrated and just check out. Yeah, I'm thinking as you say that, the especially when we talk about lifelong learning, people who are re-entering the workforce and afraid of going back to college or educational programs, that if I could do something that's AI and self-paced, if I have a strong foundation, I can, I'm not investing time that's repetitive and if I have a weak foundation I can take as much time as I need to build that foundation and not be embarrassed that I'm unprepared or ill-equipped or the, all the human emotions we feel when we face going back in a classroom after uh, years or decades away. That's right and the more we we use and apply um, what's called prior learning assessment that is giving people credit for what you already know, the better off that is too. Because that gives people confidence coming in that if you have been out in the workforce for a while, you actually did learn something while you were there and we're gonna count that toward your credential. Okay, that's fabulous. Because 
when I was on the board, that was one of the things we talked about, is how do you give people who are mid-career credit so they're not coming in as freshmen if, if, they're, if they haven't attended college at all? Because that, again, seems like a barrier for folks who have strong skills and now they want to get a degree. Right. Um, the, the Council for Adult and Experiential Learning um, that's based in, in Chicago is really a good example of an organization that is focused entirely on adult learners in exactly that situation and works very closely with industry and higher ed to make sure that that, that kind of, of credit for what you already know happens. That's fabulous. I'm just, we could go a million different ways because there's, it's such a rich topic. Yeah. So you talk about testing new approaches. What do you mean by this? Um, I think one of the things that, that we want to do is to support um, faculty in trying something different. Um, one of the problems that we, that we face is that the reward structure and reward that could be compensation, it could be um, hiring that person back if next semester if they're an adjunct, are stacked against experimentation and trying new things. Because if it doesn't work, then that could be viewed negatively. What I would, would like to do is take a page out of research. If, if a research experiment is designed properly, the odds are stacked against it working perfectly the first time. But it's when things don't work that we often learn most. So if we had the same attitude toward, toward teaching that we do for research, then we would provide incentives to try something new, um, a new experiential learning, a, a new um, kind of, of content, um, uh, a, a new uh, way of, of, of having students Teams. If it doesn't work, that's okay. We still learn something out of it. Students will still learn and, and, and adapt. So I think that's one really important thing that we need to do about evaluation. On the back end, um, we also have to pay a lot of attention to quality assurance, um, whether that's through accreditation or some other mechanism. We have to do a much better job of asking the question, so what is it that we're trying to achieve in other words, what does success in this education look like? Then agree on what metrics are we going to use? Um, you know, people have argued back and forth. Is it, the, is it salary in your first job? Is it the fact you have a job and so on and so forth? But we have to come to a, some agreement on what is. And then finally, what is the appropriate measure or rubric that we're going to use to measure it? Um, in some areas, those rubrics are really quite clear. Um, a good example of that is nursing. Um, in, in nursing, you can have a degree in, in nursing, but if you don't pass the licensure exam, you can't practice as a nurse. So the profession has, has decided what knowledge is critical and what skills are critical. Those kinds of conversations are now occurring in many more areas. We just have to continue those conversations and agree on the knowledge that we care about and, and is a good demonstration that you have achieved what you need to achieve and what skills we need to see demonstrated in order to say you have them. So I love the idea about 
testing new approaches. It, that's one of the things that I that my body of work is based on is that leaders need to take on the mind of the scientist that doing what we doing leadership as we've done it before will not allow us to meet the challenges we're facing. So it seems perfectly aligned that teaching the way we've done before will not allow us to meet the challenges of the upcoming learner requirements and changes in in classrooms overall and learner expectations and employer expectations. That's right. Um, you know, and, and you can you can sort of generalize a bit from you know all of the uh, industries that have that some some of that uh, some players in in those worlds have made it and others just haven't. And I think a really good a really good you know closer model for higher ed is really medicine, um, because you know and it's a it's I'll admit it's it's a bit of a loose analogy, but physicians are sort of analogous to faculty. You've got administration. But how uh, medicine is done and it, how it's delivered, how we engage patients in ways that we never did before, how we assess outcomes in medicine is very different than it was 10, 15 years ago. Those lessons, I think, have a lot to say to, to higher ed in, in the sense that, you know, um, we need to really start thinking very carefully about what are the core skills that lead to success short-term, medium-term, long-term? How do we make sure that, that students have them? What evidence are we going to need to see five years, ten years down the road that can inform how we inculcate those skills now? Um, and so I think, you know, higher ed, some people say, is the last economic sector to go through this. Um, we really can look to see how things have worked. Because, if you think about it, in large, in large part, higher ed produced the people that disrupted those other industries and produced the people who successfully navigated those changes. So, how do we re-engage them to come back and, in a sense, help us do the same thing? I love that idea. I'm just, my mind is spinning with all of the ways that faculty, that kind of the foundation or one of the important foundations of of university and earlier institutions will have to change how they think about their work. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, you know, one of the core notions in, in higher ed governance is, is the concept of shared governance, where the faculty and administration participate together and, and make decisions together. And, and that's as old as the academy. Well, that model informed, um, you know, management um, departments and courses and teaching over the last 40 years or so. And so now you see what looks an awful lot like shared governance in, in various corporate settings where the, the, the workers on the line, so to speak, sit with management and provide input into key decisions that, that help steer the company. Um, improve products and, and so on. So there, there are lessons to be learned in both directions and now we can see how that's played out and how can those experiences inform our need to improve our own shared governance. Cool. So last question for this segment. We have about four more minutes. Talk about the accrediting process and how it's linked to financial aid. Sure. Um, 
the accrediting process is really quite old. Uh, most of the accrediting associations that we that that um, evaluate colleges and universities are over 100 years old. Um, fast forward to the mid-1960s, Congress passed the Higher Education Act, um, and that was the beginning of the, the financial aid programs in a systematic way that we understand. Over time, that incorporated things like student loans, uh, Pell Grants, and so on and so forth. Every so often, that Higher Education Act needs to be reaffirmed. And in uh, 1992, that reaffirmation that re, um, in, included the need for institutions to be accredited in order to be eligible for, for that federal financial aid and told the accrediting agencies that they had to be the, the compliance checker. So the there's a two-part process in accreditation now. One is the, just the quality of the institution. The second part is that the accreditation team comes in to make sure that the institution is living up to all of the rules and regulations imposed by the federal government. Um, if the answer to that is yes, under the, 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 the things that they have to look at under federal law, then that institution becomes eligible for Title IV. So that's why now accreditation is so important because if you lose it, you automatically lose your eligibility for Title IV financial aid. And you know, most institutions just don't survive very well without that. So that's the, the sort of the, the real quickie history of, of how we got here. There's a, a big call for rethinking that and that um, forcing accrediting agencies to be both quality assurance and compliance checkers isn't a good idea, and so we're um, having uh, deep conversations with uh, um, experts in quality assurance, with the Department of Education, and with Congress about what to do in the next uh, reauthorization of the Higher Ed Act on this very issue. It does seem like a touchy, you want to make sure your federal financial aid is being well spent, and yet to the last question, we talked about testing new approaches. If accreditation isn't keeping pace with um, revisions in how we think about education, I could be doing all the quote right things to update how I educate and be thumped by the accrediting agencies and lose my financial aid. That's right, and you know, in in large part through no fault of the accrediting agency because they have to do what what Congress and the department forces them to do. Um, on the upside. Um, you know, in the last years of the Obama administration, they actually started some experiments on alternative delivery um, and, you know, sort of content deliverers who are not uh, colleges and universities. And can we fold them into eligibility for federal financial aid without them giving degrees? So there are some experiments running at this very moment. But until the, you know, the data are in, and we actually do do the changes in federal law that we need to do, um, we're, in a, in a sense, we're kind of stuck with some outmoded um, mechanisms and process, you know, the, 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 the requirement that we use credit hours that are based on seat time is, is one obsolete rule that everybody, you know, most people agree that needs to be changed, but we're stuck with it until we can change the federal laws and, and regulations around that. Cool, thank you. So we're going to go on break now, and we will be back with John Kavanaugh, Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Today, our guest is John Cavanaugh, and we're talking about changes in the education process from K-12 through universities into business and then continuing education. So just a tiny little topic to cover in an hour. Um, John, what other partnerships are emerging? We've talked about that continuum. What are you seeing? Sure. I th- I'm seeing some, some really different approaches on both sides between uh, business and higher ed. You know, for a long time, you know, there's always been partnerships, especially in the research area, um, uh, businesses supported research and, and all of that. So those kinds of collaborations have been around a long time. What I see emerging on the, on the content part, the educational part, is really a, a much richer dialogue um, than, you know, we're not getting the skills that we need and so on and so forth. The newest, the newest trend is for companies in a particular sector, let's say biotech or financial services, let's say, to sit down with colleges and universities and say, okay, look, here are some very specific skills that we need in our economic sector, in financial services, let's say, here are the, the, the skill sets that we need. Um, you're doing a good job, let's say, in providing us people up to a certain level, but at the uh, what, what I'll call the graduate or post-baccalaureate level, not so much. We're seeing a lot of, of gaps. So companies are sitting down with, with colleges and universities to say, could we design a set of courses that um, 
educate students around the skills that we need and sort of, you know, sort of give them a refresh in the learning to learn um, and critical thinking and, and things that we talked about earlier. So I'm seeing a lot more co-creation of credential programs, um, sometimes degrees, more often certificate programs, um, or some other way that if, if you need to keep track of continuing ed units, you can do that. But much more willingness for everybody to sit down and work together to say, okay, what is the sequence of courses that we need? How do we, uh, or what I should say, what learning outcomes do we need to, to end up with? And how can we agree to measure them? Uh, and while that's going on, um, companies are opening up um, sort of experiential opportunities for students to gain them breadth of experience in the company at the same time they're, they're doing this. So in a sense, it's um, uh, sort of team created in, in the rich sense of the term team. Uh, the consortium is, is having many of those conversations with economic sectors here in the greater D.C. area. Um, in the technology world, in um, data analytics, in cybersecurity. But the conversations are all of the kind that, that I just described. How can we work together to fashion specialized courses, um, sometimes you know, having components off the shelf, but more often um, focusing on the particular skill sets in that um, office of the company in this particular location? So it makes perfect sense as we look at what's emerging. So something like analytics, big data, cybersecurity weren't terribly relevant or even on anyone's radar screen 20 years ago. And now we've got people mid-career with the right set of skills to do small retooling to be quite adept in those fields. Right, right. <clears throat> That's right. And, you know, in, in let's say uh, you know a big financial company's location right out in you know in, in the Metro Washington area, um, we'll we will sit down with that company and say okay, what's your specializations at this location? And so we may not um, approach it from the point of view of, of well we have an MBA so just tell your students to take the MBA, but instead build a set of courses around that set of of skills for the the employees at this site, and that's a different that's a different thing than we used to, than the conversations we had, you know, 10, 20 years ago, where we would say, well, we have an MBA, maybe we could throw in a course. Okay, so this would be a, a unique, tailored program, probably leveraging on stuff that exists. That's so right. Tailoring it to throw at a company from Columbus where I am at JP Morgan because they're big or Nationwide Insurance or Cardinal Health that wouldn't be the same program delivered to all three companies. It would be customized for each one. That's exact. That's exactly right. Um, and, and, you know, to give you a different example, one of the largest employers in St. Louis is Express Scripts. So universities in St. Louis have, have sat with Express Scripts and say, what kinds of skills do you need in, in the different areas of your company here in St. Louis. 
so they, again, they would tailor you know up and down the the higher ed spectrum, whether it's from the associate level on up. And then a final area that's that's emerging, our companies are understanding that as they bring in more technology, that's going to displace some of their employees. So they're thinking down the road, three, five years from now, when a major sector of their employment is going to disappear. So they're already talking about how do we work with this entire employee segment, increase the level of their skills so that if, for example, robots are going to be coming in, how do we, when those robots show up, how do we already have those, those, that workforce with improved skills to run, repair, program those robots? So we're also having those, the, those you know, down-the-road conversations and helping companies create um, ways of improving the skills of their workforce so that they don't need to be displaced. I love that idea just as a citizen, because when we think about AI, artificial intelligence, people doing jobs will be augmented, if not replaced by machines. It would be socially beneficial for the for our community and for the individuals who are at risk of losing their jobs, highly beneficial for they and their families if they could be retrained to work with the AI machines rather than being ejected with new people brought in who are AI experts. That's right. And companies are understanding that it's far less expensive to do the internal training than it is to try and, and recruit and hire from outside. Um, you um, you know, are, are hoping that um, in, in, you know, employee um, excitement and commitment to the company remains because the company's investing in you. Um, so I think that, that there's a lot of, of pluses to uh, companies to invest in, in their employees that way. And in a way, this is a, um, a more sophisticated version of what companies used to do 30, 40 years ago. You know, they would bring you in, send you to the six-week or whatever boot camp, um, you know, and, and do a lot of internal training. Then they kind of stopped that. Um, and now we're kind of back to it, but at a more sophisticated, higher level. When I think of what creates an employee engagement, certainly having the sense that the company is investing in me just as I am investing in the company. So from a commitment perspective, it seems like a no-brainer. Right. You know, and, and, you know, the, the, the experience of many companies is it's, it's far less expensive, and you get a more committed workforce. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to go off onto this too much, but the idea that there, the incremental amount of productivity that each employee delivers when they're engaged is significant. So I realize, as companies, we invest in the training, and it's not inconsequential. And yet, the productivity differential in many cases could easily offset the investment in. in ongoing learning. That's right. That's right. So let's shift gears with our remaining time and talk about tools to help parents and students shape how they think about education. Because we've talked about starting kindergarten through 12th grade and then college, 
that whole equation is changing in some cases slightly and in some cases dramatically. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, um, the way that I kind of approach um, education, and I'll talk about that side of it first, is that we're, we're now engaging in education for three interrelated reasons. Um, I'll call the, the first one, um, you know, employment. In other words, you know, we, we have to make money and support ourselves. So clearly uh, one big part or reason for education is that it provides an opportunity to get skills that can provide you, you the income to support yourself. So that's a really important aspect of it. Um, we have a number of tools to help parents and, and students figure that out. Um, we can start with a, with a job and say, so what kinds of skills do you need to have in order to get that job, whether it's an accountant or um, a construction manager or a plumber or whatever it is, you can deconstruct it into skills and then work backwards to say, okay, in order to be a plumber, you need math and, and, and so on. A second kind of education that, that happens that's equally important is that it helps you to put your day-to-day life in context. It helps you make sense of things. So um, ha- there are those aspects of education that help you figure out uh, different issues, how to solve problems in daily life, how to figure out, um, for example, why the government works or doesn't work. When you, when you hear in the news that you know, 30% of Americans feel this way, what does, what does that really mean? Or if there's a 40% chance of rain tomorrow, what does that really mean? Um, how to judge the credibility of information you see on the web um, and, and so on. So all of those kinds of skills. Um, we can work with parents and, and students to say, you know, those are some of the things that we talked about earlier. Um, learning how to learn, um, critical thinking, how to make yourself understood and express yourself in writing and speech and, and so on before, um, you know, sort of beyond 142 characters. Then the third aspect of, of education has to do with grappling with what, what I'll call the big questions in life. Um, you know, so how do I get meaning out of my life? How do I make my life worthwhile? Um, how do I get purpose? What's my legacy? And, and so on. Um, again, we, we can work with, with, with parents and, and show them and, and students that some of the courses that you might think that, um, you know, why am I sitting here right now? Um, you know, those are the ones that 20, 30, 40 years later um, turn out to be the really critical ones. All of that is rolled into the programs that we run out of the consortium on college access. It's not just about teaching people how to, to pay for college. It's understanding all these different layers of education from, sure, the skills necessary to get work all the way up to, so when I have my own family, how do I go about figuring out or learning what I need to know about how to raise my child? Um, what, what, should I, what should I eat? All of those kinds of things. So, John, let's shift in the last couple of minutes, minute and a half, and talk a little bit about the consortium, because we haven't really covered what is your mission and, and what do you do. Sure. Our consortium has uh, almost every kind of nonprofit higher education institution you can think of 
We have institutions run by the Pentagon. We have the world's only university for the deaf and hard of hearing. We have um, historically uh, black institutions. And we have institutions that, that are in the district, Maryland and Virginia. So we're a multi-state entity, um, public, private. So when we talk about education, we are all about how do we collaborate across the sectors. We share courses. Uh, we make those courses available to students at all of the different institutions as long as you have the prerequisites. Um, and so we really are at the, at the cutting edge of the collaborative model that I talked about earlier in, in very deep and meaningful ways. Um, we, uh, we have a, a, a sense that institutions in the family are part of the family and you know, there are no class distinctions in that, in that sense. So it's a really interesting way, I'll call it a model, of what might be if you have a number of institutions in your area or you know, in, a, in a virtual collaboration. Really think hard about, about sharing programs, sharing courses, allow students to cut across, to create their own majors, and to take advantage of all of the assets that are in their area. So just in the last few seconds, can you give us the contact information? Because I'm imagining everywhere from administrators to parents uh, to faculty might be interested in learning more about the consortium. Sure. The best is to visit our website at www.consortium, C-O-N-S-O-R-T-I-U-M dot O-R-G. Thank you. So I'm going to just recap very quickly. So, so as we are looking at changes in how our how we function as a global society, one of the foundations for being a democracy, for being a citizens who help govern our country, whichever country we're in, is an ed- educated citizenry if we are a democracy. And having mechanisms to educate people, whether they, whether it's university or adult education, are foundational to governance and economic security. And what the consortium is doing is at the leading edge of making that education possible and adapting it to the needs of our society as we change. So John, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week.